So yesterday we heard about the uh, fifth of the five faculties, um, panya, um, translated as insight or wisdom, uh, discernment, and um, how this kind of insight um, has the potential to lead to um, the deepest letting go. And um, so I thought as a topic for today, um, you know, maybe it seems to me the natural follow-on to that is um, what does letting go look like? And um, what does uh, a life of letting go look like? Um, or maybe another way to, to put that is, what does a life that's based on the Dharma, that's centered on the Dharma look like? Um, the Dharma meaning uh, what is true, what is real? Um, what is a life that's based on truth it's centered on truth, on, on reality. Um, what does that look like? And I was, uh, I was remembering this story I recently heard about a man who um, was, was um, very disturbed by what was happening in uh, the political life of the country, of this country. And this was about I don't know, maybe 30 years ago or something. And uh, he was not happy with the policies of the president at the time. And so what he did was he um, protested by himself and he stood outside of the White House every single evening with a candle, with a candle lit. And um, doing this every single day for maybe a year or two years. And then finally the news interviewed him and they asked him, um, what are you doing? You know, do, do you really think you're gonna, you're gonna change things by, by doing this? Um, and he said, oh, um, I don't expect uh, that they'll change, but I'm doing this so that they don't change me. Um, you know, so maybe this is one, one answer to um, what, what does letting go look like? What does, um, you know, in the face of uh, something that we perceive as, as uh, you know, not right or unjust, uh, maybe letting go uh, has the expression of integrity. Um, and, and I think sometimes when we hear the, 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 the words letting go, or we think about this practice, we think that, yes, we're letting go of suffering. Okay, that's probably good. <laughs> but maybe we're also letting go of happiness. 
you know, and we're going to kind of be a bit of a blank zombie. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it was no fun. And, uh, but I, the, the, um, the, f the words that, that are meaningful to me or that come to me around this are um, letting go is not something that takes us out of our life. It's not something that detaches us and separates us. Actually, it's, it brings us into our life, like we, we let go into our life. Um, that, so there's um, you know, less and less, or maybe we can say no separation between who we are and what our life is. Um, that we're willing to fully inhabit our life and um, the other words that come to mind are uh, open heart, to have an open heart. Um, and that can be scary, you know, because an open heart is open. <laughs> it's open to anything. It's open to everything. Um, we feel more. Um, we're more sensitive. We, um, uh, we're impacted. Um, we're waking up from the illusion of separation. Um, so, so maybe we could say that how, uh, how this is expressed depends on um, the circumstances. You know, um, uh, when, when we encounter um, others in relationship, maybe this takes the form of love. When the open heart um, meets suffering, um, it, it takes the form of compassion, of this deep wish to alleviate our own suffering and the suffering of others. Um, when this open heart meets uh, others who are happy, it takes the form of joy. You know, so um, and I think also um, for, for myself and um, early in my practice, I found it very meaningful to um, have role models. And you know, what, what, what does this look like? What does letting go look like? What does a life um, that's centered on this look like? Um, and in, uh, um, I remember early in my practice hearing that um, Suzuki Roshi, the teacher from uh, San Francisco Zen Center, had said that um, we practice when we're young so we can enjoy our old age, you know. Um, and I think there's, there's something um, 
wonderful about finding the Dharma um, when we're young. I, mean, I think the Dharma is, is wonderful at any age, at any time in life. But, but maybe when we're younger, we have, um, we're maybe a little bit closer to that beginner's mind, you know, where we have less, there's, there's less accumulation um, to let go of, I don't know. Um, so, so all of this is a little bit of a preamble <laughs> um, that, that um, I had a request, which was to ask Gil to talk a little bit about um, his life and uh, some of the turning points in, in, in his practice and um, what, what has supported him in um, living a life that's based in the Dharma. So um, I had to twist his arm a little bit, but, uh, <laughs> so to speak. And, um, But I, I, um, I, th I think that, you know, retreat practice is wonderful. And what we're doing here is, is um, important and meaningful, but uh, not to lose sight of the fact that it's in the service of, of living a life in the Dharma. And it's in the service of bringing what we discover here and discover about ourselves um, out into the world, you know. And so we have our light, the candle, you know, the light that we discover. And um, how are we going to offer that? How are we going to share that? How are we going to um, express that in all the different, uh, uh, you know, among all the different possibilities and all the different ways? So. It seemed a little strange to kind of tell my story at a retreat like this. It doesn't seem quite to fit in my mind. And but I decided, or I do, I trusted Max that if he felt this was useful, that it probably is. But I didn't know what to expect, and so I think he did a wonderful introduction to all this, setting it up. So I think listening to that that the topic is how the Dharma has lived in me. Th that I can talk about some, I think, that kind of history of that. That seems okay enough. Um, you know, I was thinking at that, I, I was thinking he wanted me to talk about my, myself. <laughs> but you know, my, um, I think that, you know, I, I certainly have a biography, you know, a history of my life, but I don't really feel very connected to it anymore. It's kind of, I don't identify with it. It's not that, it certainly was important to get me where I am, but, but it's not like so, it doesn't have much 
relevance for me, it seems to me, these days. I can tell you, you know, some of the difficulties I had growing up and challenges and that I changed school 12 times in 12 years of grade school. And all kinds of things. But, um, but this idea of, you know, a life of letting go, life of the Dharma, I encountered, the first encountered, uh, I think my first encounter with the Dharma was when I was 14 reading, kind of the Dharma, reading Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. And you know, so it's a kind of romantic, idealistic portrayal, kind of poetry more than real dharma. But it really ins inspired me at that time, but I didn't think about it again. And then um, I was, uh, I went to school at University of California in Santa Barbara. They had a huge oil spill down there off the coast, and it was a, one of the big environmental disasters of that time. And, uh, and uh, it was the burgeoning beginning of the environmental movement in many ways. And there was a book called the Limit of Limits to Growth that was the first kind of real book that was talking about how we can't, con can't sustain the consumption we're doing and this limited resources on the planet. And that uh, really moved me. And so I became an environmental studies major. But I, after I studied that for a while, it seemed like it's, that's not where the answers are. It must be in politics. So I studied political science for a little bit. And that didn't seem to go deep enough. We had these conversations in the dorms and friends. And then um, I said, well, it has to do with it back in the language of back then. I don't know if people use this anymore, but back then it was a change of consciousness. And um, and so, well, well, you know, that's really needed to get down to, that's the, it's the state of the consciousness, people's state of mind, the ways of thinking that are really at the heart of it all. And so what do we do about that? So uh, then I thought, well, I, somehow I got the idea that um, Eastern religion, Taoism, Buddhism had some value for this. So I thought that would be good to study, but I didn't really, it was in, mostly intellectual kind of interest. I dropped out of college, and um, and I really discovered the Dharma, you know, in a personal way. At the same time that I discovered honesty, the power of honesty, I ended up uh, living in a commune. I think it was the largest kind of psychedelic commune in back then in America, in the United States. There were eight hundred people lived there in Tennessee. They'd come from Haight-Ashbury in psychedelic school buses, big caravan. <laughs> and somehow they ended up in Tennessee. <laughs> and uh, when I got there, the, the leaders of the big community had uh, taken the responsibility for being busted for doing too much LSD in Tennessee doesn't work very well there back then. So they spent a year in jail and they, uh, but somehow they understood that in Tennessee, uh, th there was their, that was their sacrament, LSD. 
And so they had to come up with um, an alternative that was as powerful as LSD. And they came up with honesty. And uh, the reason I stayed was I'd never been with people who were so honest. Uh, I mean, but, but you know, uh, to be honest, you have to talk a lot. <laughs> because there were conflicts in the community and I was so impressed they would stop and they would talk and work through every conflict that I saw. And they'd work through it, talk about it until they kind of came to some understanding or someone, something was released and then they can continue. And I was so impressed by these people because they could, uh, um, they got really good at it and you could watch the skill. Sometimes all they had to do was look at each other and smile like, oh yeah, there I did it again, sorry. They kind of got to know each other so well, they were so willing to admit what was going on and it was so inspiring for me to see this way of living and being transparent and, and hanging in there with difficulties and finding the way through until everyone is satisfied. But in this, uh, the place is called The Farm and um, the, the Bible of the farm was the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And uh, so everyone had a copy, I don't know if everyone had a copy, but there was a copy in every, we were, every tent. Most people lived in U.S. Army tents, big surplus, you know, even the surplus stores. And I don't know how many of us who lived, maybe 12 of us lived in this tent. And um, in the winter, in the snow, in Tennessee. And um, so each tent, I think, you know, each pod had a, probably a copy of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And so I read it there and I was kind of blown away by it. I never read anything that the feeling I had was, um, he was saying all the things I knew, but didn't know that I knew. That was the best I could say. You know, it, was, it all seemed so familiar what he, he was saying in this book. It really kind of, wow, this, but yes, of course. So I left and I uh, went to San Francisco Zen Center and checked it out and and um, wanted to right away I knew I wanted to do Zen practice, but I, I was I was twenty years old, twenty one, twenty 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 one, and I felt that um, I had to take care of some loose ends before I could go off and do something like that. And one of the loose ends was to go back to my home country. I'm from Norway. And so I wanted to go back there and see, you know, what was, you know, what was my relationship to my home country? And, and, uh, and uh, so I did that and came back to go to college, finish college at UC Davis to study. I was, I was now, by now I was interested in agriculture and um, became one of the pioneering people involved in alternative agriculture at this big research university and taught classes, maybe one of the first classes in organic farming at, at that university. So that was nice. But then I went off to Zen Center to live there. And while I was there, um, I um, applied for graduate school at UC Berkeley. I had studied soil, I studied soil science and agriculture, and so I knew one of the big problems of in the planet was um, soil erosion. And a lot of people don't know much about soil erosion and what a huge problem it is. And um, 
And then, so I knew about it, so I thought, I'll go back and get a master's degree in uh, soil conservation and go and try to save soil around the world. And um, I was living at Green Gulch, and you know, I think, think uh, UC Berkeley's semester begins probably end of August or something, sometime in August. And uh, it's right, something like that. So I was happily living at Green Gulch doing this practice there, sitting and meditating and working on the farm. And, and then beginning of August, it dawned on me that I was supposed to be going to graduate school <laughs> in a few weeks. And uh, I hadn't found a place to live, I hadn't done anything. So I suddenly realized, oh, this is coming up. So uh, it was kind of like, um, it, it kind of got me energized somehow, that the reality of this. So it was um, Sunday morning at Green Gulch, and they, at noon they did this chanting, this ceremony, noon, called noon service, where they chant the Heart Sutra. And I got intensely focused on, what should I do? Do I go to graduate school? What do I do? And, um, and uh, so there was this kind of, kind, of, kind of this concentration of focus on this topic. Like, what do I do here? And then I went in and, and I was kind of ha having those thoughts and then I was chanting this chant called the Heart Sutra, which I had known, I memorized, and I could kind of get into the concentrate, concentrated mode of chanting it. And then in the middle of chanting it, it was like this little explosion happened inside my body and kind of surfaced. And it said, go to Tassahara, go to the Zen monastery in the mountains. And it was so clear that I knew, that it was so clear, it was like, no question. I, mean, I didn't know why, it just, no question. This is what I do. And, uh, and this kind of, getting these kinds of messages like this, uh, of what to do, has been part of my Dharma path. And uh, so that was like the first really strong one. So I went to Tosahara, started practicing there, and was fairly happy practicing at the Zen monastery. But I was still, you know, what am I doing? What am I supposed to do with my life? And what I did with UC Berkeley, um, I just called them up and said, something came up. <laughs> Can I postpone for a year? So they said, sure. And uh, so then I, um, and so then, but then the question is, well, you know, after about, you know, about six months before I was supposed to go back to then try again, you know, I was living in the monastery. I was happy in the monastery except for my days off. Every five days you had the day off. And you know, when you weren't practicing and working and you know, engaged, which I loved. But when the day's off, I, I was left to myself and my thoughts. And, uh, and I spent a lot of time, uh, in the days off, hiking in the mountains, racked with question, what do I do with my life? What am I supposed to do? Do I go back and you know, serve the world with soil science, or what do I do, and do I stay here, and and I kind of struggled with this question, didn't know what to do, and uh, I had lots of imagina imaginary scenarios, and uh, you know, the futures, and what they would look like, and possibilities, and, and one day on one of my walks, I um, it occurred to me suddenly that, well, Gil, you're living in an imaginary world. It's all about the imagination of what might the future be and what imaginary ideas of what I should do. And, 
it's all kind of a virtual reality of a certain kind. It means not not irrelevant to what's going on in the world, but I could see I was just spinning my thoughts. <clears throat> and I, I said, I don't know if that I can find a solution that way. So it occurred to me that uh, I would just start over. It was kind of a, I think it was a brilliant thing, at least for me. Uh, I just, like it occurred to me that why don't I just start over as if, just let's just see what the next step is, the next thing to do, the next thing. But it was such a good place to have that beginning because I was in a Buddhist monastery. <laughs> <laughs> And the bell rings, and the next thing is to go meditate. <laughs> and then the next thing, and next thing. And, and, uh, and also in the monastery, you're a little bit, um, it is a, Max talks about letting go. There's a lot of renunciation there, a lot of letting go. Uh, you know, your schedule, you let go of your, a lot of your desires and a lot of things you want to do and let go and just let go and just kind of participate in there. And, and then if, they, if something is needed, they, someone asks you to do something, they ask very nicely, but, you know, you're kind of supposed to let go of other ideas <laughs> and just do it. How many times I sat in meditation, meditating in the morning, you know, feeling like, oh, this meditation is great or something or whatever. Or, I don't know if it's always great, but I thought this is important. Meditation's where it's at <laughs> with all my struggles. And, um, and I would get this tap on my shoulder in meditation they need you now in the kitchen. <laughs> the cook is sick. But, <laughs> but <laughs> kitchen doesn't, that's not real practice. That's not where it's at. You know, that where it's at is meditating. <laughs> Gil, <laughs> doesn't matter what you think, you know, and uh, kind of so. So there's always letting go. And I found that letting go was great. Just, I was just, it was kind of, so it freed me up from a lot of my conceit, a lot of my self-preoccupation. In that context of the monastery was helpful. And, um, and then, um, so I let go of the idea of going to graduate school, just because that wasn't the next step. I just I to stay there. And then I remember one day, um, my, my Zen teacher, Mel Weitzman, was, uh, we kind of crossed each other in the path. And uh, I wasn't premeditated, I just suddenly blurted out this statement to him. I, and it's maybe you know, a little bit unfortunate choice of words, but I'll, I'll explain it. I said to him, I feel like I, I've become a response machine. So being a machine is not such an inviting thing. But what I meant was that, um, that uh, there, there was something, I wasn't so, it wasn't so much, it didn't feel like I was so much at the center of of my actions, but rather there was responding happening within me and that that responding was happening spontaneously or happening, you know, without my, my conscious kind of decision-making or something. And it, it certainly was not reaction. It, these responses felt like the appropriate response. It felt like this is what's needed right here. And so there was something about letting go of my self-centeredness, letting go of my self-concern, letting go of making myself the primary reference for how I understand the world, how I navigate in the world, how I see the world, that uh, was slowly, slowly kind of growing or changing as I kept doing this practice over and over again. 
And from that kind of emptiness or that clarity or that lack of self-concern, I didn't end up just a, you know, like a couch potato, but there was this, I was kind of, I was kind of surprised and kind of a little bit in awe of what was happening, that there was just this response that would come. And, uh, and it seems like, you know, if there was a need, I would respond to it, you know, whatever. It's, it's kind of like, that was, you know, something new. And then um, <clears throat> I was still kind of wondering, what do I do with my life? And uh, by that time, you know, one of the possibilities was to be ordained as a, as a monk. And, um, and, you know, so that was kind of in the background there. And then the abbot of the monastery, he didn't come that often, but especially he didn't come during the summer months. But one, well, he came in the middle of summer, or some, unusually. And so there was the opportunity then to talk with him. And um, so, so I was kind of galvanized by that, a certain way. So uh, I was just, Tassara is just beautiful, it's deep in the wilderness, and there's this river that runs through it. And I was sitting on this little kind of little kind of deck kind of thing, and uh, just sitting there in a chair, looking at the river. And I was got very focused on this topic: what should I do? What do I do with my life? Again, this had kept. And I was just kind of, you know, watching the river. I think I was pretty relaxed, and there might have been some concentration involved, just watching the river go by, and what do I do? And then, boom, become a monk. And I knew, I just knew that's what I was going to do. No question about it. But I'm kind of a rational kind of person, if you've noticed. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and so, um, so then I kind of came up with the reasons. <laughs> but the reason, you know, that was kind of secondary. There was just like this knowing happened. So I um, was ordained as a monk. And soon after I was ordained, the abbot decided that we weren't monks. We were priests, Zen priests. <gasps> what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I, you know, I felt monastic. I felt that's what it was my my path, and um, but you know the reason I did it, it, it was kind of deeper than the reasons I kind of came up to explain. But the real good deep root for that impulse to be ordained was that um, and not go into soil science and soil conservation. I thought soil conservation, that kind of thing, was very very important, and I really wanted people to do it. But I felt that for me, that uh, I would always have some dissatisfaction in doing it. Because I knew that as important as that is, it was not going to touch the heart, the source of suffering in people's, in peop- deep inside of people. And there's something inside of me, this response thing going on that was happening. I wanted to be able to respond to uh, and try to help at suffering at its roots, deepest place. And I could kind of feel viscerally that I would feel kind of off or dissatisfied if my life wasn't dedicated to that. And the only thing I knew how to do that was through Buddhism. So that's kind of why I wanted to devote myself to this. And I didn't think that I would be a teacher. Um, the um, 
the image I had for myself was that um, I would live in some urban area and there would be a little hole-in-the-wall zendo, little Zen meditation hall, just a hall, and I would possess the key and mm -hmm. I, would, I would be the priest or the monk and I would open it up every day and, you know, we would meditate and I would kind of keep it clean and meditate with people and have a place people can meditate. And that was what I thought I would be doing. And um, so, um, so the life of the Dharma, it's okay to go, it's just okay. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know. <laughs> 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 um, so um, then an in interesting thing happened. It was only about a year and a half or so after I was ordained. And I had this idea that picked up that you should stay with your teacher who ordains you for five years to get trained, and then you can go off. But I'd been at Zen Center for a while, and I was starting to feel... I needed fresh air. And I think it was a reasonable idea. Uh, the community and was just felt like it was too ingrown, it was too inwardly focused. It was a little bit, I wouldn't say it was a cult, but you know, it was a little bit, you know, self-preoccupied in a narrow-minded way and the idea that here's where the truth is. And it was like, didn't something, it didn't really feel like, I needed some fresh air and perspective. But I, you know, I, I was just ordained, I couldn't do that. And so the, uh, the first time uh, I told someone this, I was telling a friend that this feeling I had, and while I was saying it, uh, Ed Brown, who was one of the senior people there, he was on the board at that time, he came up to me and said, Gil, uh, I need to talk to you. Could you come over to my, my room, my house, uh, when you finish your conversation here? So I did, and we sat down, and. I think I might have been sitting this way. It was kind of a little bit formal. I didn't know, what, what does the board want with me? What did I do wrong? And um, I didn't know what to expect. And he told me uh, about what, I guess, to say, to say it simply so you understand a little bit, the scandal around the abbot, and uh, which devastated so many people at Zen Center. It was really, really hard. People felt betrayed and everything. But when I heard it, <laughs> <laughs> My thought was, I'm free. <laughs> so, uh, what does a free Zen monk do? So, I, I went to Japan to practice there. And, um, but I, I had like only $200 or $300, $250, I think, something like that. So, I didn't, you know. I was given a ticket to go to Japan by my father. He was working in Japan, and he said, Gil, he said to me, Gil, why don't you come? I'll pay your ticket. And I said, no, no, I'm <laughs> doing my Zen training. And then I got this news. So I called up my dad and said, I'd like to come. So I got this ticket. I went $250 or so in my pocket. And like the rational thing to do when you have so little money is um, to work. <laughs> So I got to Japan, and um, it was very easy to teach English in Japan. So I went and uh, got myself a job, teach English, and make some money. 
But I think it was two weeks before the job was going to start. So what does a Zen priest do with idle time uh, in Japan? So I went and found a Zen monastery to go sit to Sashin, a seven-day retreat. And um, so I sat, and it was, it was nice. So this is a couple of stories about, um, you know, trusting the Dharma or something. So I was sitting there, and then in the middle of the retreat, I saw to kill. You didn't come to Japan to teach English. You came to study practice Zen. Yeah, that's what I came for. So I decided, uh, I'm just going to take my chances. I'm going to take my chances with the Dharma. I'm going to just throw myself into the Zen thing, what I came for, and, um, and cancel this teaching thing that I had. So that made that decision, to trust the Dharma. So this is, you know, a little bit of an anecdote that's kind of, you know, you don't want to make too much of it, but it's kind of symbolic of what's been the case of my life. Once that whenever I trusted the Dharma, things seemed to work out. So I decided to do, that's what I decided to do. At the end of the retreat, I was going to say goodbye to the abbot. And, um, and it was a cust- it was free to be there, but it was a custom to make a little offering. But the offering was a little bit symbolic and uh, more than, you know, the money amount didn't really matter that much. But, you know, I, so I, but you're, symbolic, you're supposed to put it in a nice envelope and you show up in a kind of like a Zen tea ceremony. You kind of bow and you offer it. So I came to the abbot to his little office and he was sitting at a desk and we had a little, I talked, you know, gave him the, some money. It was, I didn't have much money, but I gave him what I thought for, I, for me was generous or something. I forget what I gave him. And, uh, and he asked about me. I told him that my story about having had a Zen master in America, but he had a scandal and now I didn't have a Zen master. And so he called me, there's a name for people like me. Um, you, uh, you, know, you know what a ronin is? A ronin is a samurai who has no master. So I was now a ronin monk. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're a ronin monk in Japan, apparently there's a custom that you, you support them with train money so they can go look for a master, because it's so important to have a master. So when he heard the story, he said, just wait a minute. And he went to the back room, was there for a few minutes, and then came out with an envelope. And he handed me an envelope. <laughs> <laughs> and when I left, it had more money than I gave him. <laughs> so, um, so that was kind of, you know, this, I trusted the Dharma, and look what it just... <laughs> And um, then I um, had to get a new visa to stay and practice in Japan. And it turned out that really uh, the easiest and cheapest way for me to do that was to go to Thailand. And so I went there. But what does a Zen monk do in Thailand waiting for a visa to come? So I found uh, the nearest meditation monastery I could and said, I'm here. Just tell me what to tell me. I'd like to learn what you do here. I said, great. There's a little one-room little hut out the edge on the swamps, edge of the just kind of dog patch, chaotic monastery. You go out there, and here's your schedule. Just walk, sit, walk and sit, and walk and sit, and come see me tomorrow. So I did that, and the next day I talked to him, and he gave me more instructions. And so it was a vipassana, this kind of practice we do here. And I was sitting there waiting for my visa to come, 
And it took me 10 weeks to realize the visa wasn't coming. So my first Vipassana retreat <laughs> was 10 weeks long. <laughs> you know, like this, because I was doing it, and doing it alone. There wasn't anyone to talk to, you know, it was just, you know, I just sitting and walking, <laughs> sitting and walking. <laughs> so I'd never sat and walked and been on retreat. In Zen, the longest you do a real silent retreat like that is seven days. So, you know, 10 weeks of that, is, it, it got my attention. It got my attention really deeply in a number of ways. And, but the most important way was that I, I think I got more concentrated than I'd ever been before. And in that concentration, I touched uh, a little, like what felt like a little seed, teeny little dot or something inside of me, deep, deep inside, that I kind of identified with myself. This is me, the me or something. And, you know, I didn't know enough about Buddhism, luckily, to think that was a problem. Because yeah, you're not supposed to have a self kind of idea. Uh, so that was very fortunate. But I, just, I, I touched it, and I, it wasn't like good or bad. All I knew was I had to touch it again. And so my time was up there. I did go to Japan, finished the year, ran out of money, went back to the United States, worked as a, in a restaurant for a while to earn money, and then went back to be in Burma, which was the origin of the meditation practice I learned in Thailand. But during that time, it was really, a, a, for me, a dark night of the soul, because nothing really mattered anymore. It was like a biological imperative to go touch that place again. And uh, you know, I, it's, I can't, you know, I don't really want to rational, you know, give you rational reasons for it. Or, uh, but uh, there are times when we go through the layers of the mind or layers of the heart that it becomes nothing else matters at some point in order to see that process through. And uh, and it was a dark night of the soul time because I couldn't get there fast enough. It turned out very hard to get a visa for Burma back then. It was closed. The only way to get into the country for any length of time, the only kind of exception to a country that was at that point closed to the West, to the, to the outer world, was they had a category of visa called meditation visa. And um, so it took a while to get it. It took quite a while, two attempts, and I finally got it in the uh, embassy in Bangkok. And uh, I got that stamp on my passport, and I left the embassy and was kind of skipping and dancing down the street. Uh, you know, so happy I was going to go meditate. And uh, singing, you can get it if you really want. <laughs> but you got to try, try, try. <laughs> so, is this still okay? <laughs> is this what you wanted? <laughs> it's close enough. <laughs> And uh, my, my idea of going to Burma that second time, going to Asia second time, was I was going for the duration. That's, you know, I didn't know how long it was going to be. I was going for the duration. And I didn't really know duration for what. I, I didn't really have any real clear understanding of how this path works or how, um, you know, what, what all is involved. But I had this biological imperative. imperative. I just, my body knew. I, I'm going. I, uh, this. I'm going for however long it takes to do whatever it is that needs to be done here. I don't know what it is, but I have no choice. This is what has to happen.
And I kept, so I kept trusting these instincts, I kept trusting these instincts. And so I ended up in Burma, was ordained there as a monk for a while. And, um, and I, I could probably fair to say that that place that was deep inside, that place of self, that little kernel that I wanted to touch, I never touched it. But I, I went further than that. And, uh, and by going further, it, it became an irrelevant issue. That whole question of touching that was no longer became relevant. It's just not, not an issue, not a thing. And uh, what that going further uh, was probably one of the, probably one of the most important experiences of my life. The, how that changed me or transformed me, or how I saw reality in a new way and saw myself in a new way, and and um, and um, and. Um, And so I came back to this country to practice some more, and I went, we did a three-month retreat at IMS and went through the deepening of that whole process. And um, then I went back to Zen Center because, I mean, I didn't, I mean, it wasn't like I had job skills. <laughs> <laughs> Or any interest in a job, you know, or like, you know, I, I mean, what was, I, I didn't know. Did, so, so it was nice to go back to Zen Center. It was a nice integration. It was a nice place to kind of integrate and digest what had happened. And I mean, I guess I went back for about a year. No, just less than a year, maybe about nine months. And, um, but I realized that I, I shouldn't stay at Zen Center anymore, that that wasn't the right place. I couldn't just live at Zen Center. That, that, I mean, just that didn't seem like a proper thing to do. And, um, and, um, but you know, what do I do? You know, I, I wasn't interested in any kind of conventional job. I was interested in Buddhism. I was interested in supporting people in practice. So I came up with this idea that, uh, if I got a master's in Buddhist studies, then I could, uh, get a job teaching Buddhism in a community college and kind of be in the field of Buddhism and then we'll figure out what to do from there. So I went to, got a master's, and it was so much fun. I was like a kid in a candy store, because uh, I'd done all these, I'd done 10 intensive years of uh, meditation and practice that, you know, those 10 years, I don't think I spent, you know, more than a week or two at any given time away from intensive practice. I gave myself over to that. And, um, and so I didn't actually study much Buddhism. I didn't know much about it. So it was so much fun to, or so much you know, interesting to finally learn about Buddhism and read about it. So I finished that for two years. And, um, and then, you know, like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, I, didn't, I didn't have like any, any real ambition or something. And like, what do I do? I, I, all I knew, I wanted to go back in the Bay Area because my teachers were there. Various Buddhist teachers I had were kind of in the Bay Area. So I went to come back, so what do I do? So, so it had some logical sense to it that I would apply to PhD program. Because the, the master's program, master's was so much fun. So I, so I, I didn't expect to get accepted. I applied to two master's doctoral programs in Buddhist studies in the Bay Area and got accepted both of them. And so I, accept, I accepted the one that gave me the most financial aid to do it. 
And, um, and so I did that and was shocked when I started a doctoral program that um, doctoral programs are a lot different than master's programs. And it was uh, kind of like, it was so critically analytical into the minutiae of kind of all this stuff that it seemed like started to lose the practice or lose the heart of it. Uh, and during that process, <clears throat> when I came back from Burma and back to Zen Center, I met uh, my woman, woman, woman who I was going to marry. And, um, and you know, that was just, it, that just uh, in terms of trusting the Dharma and letting the response and letting, finding, a, finding you know, f moving with practice into the world, uh, starting that relationship was just as much part of that process as going on a retreat. And um, I had no idea that it was not practice to do it. It was just, that was part of it. And um, I was, again, felt very fortunate that that could begin at a monastery because we could kind of be together in ways that maybe are not so common, sharing the practice and together and the monastic life, semi-monastic life. Can't call it monastic when you're not celibate, I guess. <laughs> and um, and then um, and also I had my teachers there, and so I would uh, check in with them about this relationship, and so it was done consciously and you know step by kind of kind of step by step consciously and carefully and over many months to kind of really be aligned in a way that felt appropriate for making this practice or being part of practice or being part of this whole unfolding. And then um, I'll end with a couple of things. So then uh, I came to this doctoral program here in the Bay Area and um, oh, so so um, I'll tell you a little story. So when I came back from Burma, I was there. I did, there I did an eight-month retreat. In Thailand it was ten weeks. In Burma it was eight months of silent retreating, like what you're doing here, right? But for eight months. But mostly I did it in my room. I had given a little cell, and I mostly meditated alone. I loved it. It was like some of the happiest times of my life. It was like so much. Anyway, it was pretty phenomenal except when it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and it was so, uh, so transformative for me. So when I came back, Jack uh, 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 Cornfield lived in the Bay Area. I didn't never met him personally. Before I'd left, I'd called him on the phone. And he gave me a little bit of advice on the phone, which I didn't listen to. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, but so I, the, the only person I knew in the, in, the, in, the, in the area who I could relate to what had happened to me or what, could, so I called him up and asked if I could see him. So I called him up and so he said, come see me. So I went out to see him where he lived and he was very gracious with me and we talked, it was very nice. And then uh, it kind of came out of my mouth. He said, you know, uh, something like, uh, yeah, well, I was so excited. It was like a born again, Vipassana person. Mm -hmm. 
And I said, um, you know, you trained me to be a teacher. The guy didn't know me. <laughs> we were talking about presumptuous. But I didn't, I was kind of naive. And I said, and he said, well, you know, I, I have a teacher training group I'm teaching right now, and so now's not the time. And maybe you can join my experienced students group or something. So I said, okay. So, and he said, uh, some American teacher has to know your practice. Okay. So I left now driving away. I said, boy, was that presumptuous. The guy doesn't even know me. I'm asking to become a teacher. And like, wow, that's crazy. And um, so I, I just dropped the whole thing. I went to IMS, practiced there, went to the master's program. And then I got this, Jack Cornfield called me out of the blue one day. And he said, uh, would you like me to train you to be a teacher? And again, this, phys this physicality, how the Dharma or something works in this body of mine. I mean, you know, I, I think I'm very, I don't know, I've become, I think, I think it's fair to say, through this practice, I've become very attuned to my body. And the body is a place for me where a lot goes on, process and understanding. And as he was, as he was asking, inviting me to join this teacher training, it was physically like the puzzle pieces of my life clicked together. That was the feeling. Of course, I'd say yes. So I came back and did this doctoral program and part of the homework for this teacher training was to uh, somehow be a teacher for a little sitting group. And there was one uh, in Palo Alto that had been there for three, four years. But the person who facilitated it uh, had prostate cancer and was going to die soon. So he asked me if I would take it over. So I was invited to take it over. Well, I'd take it over. I was invited to teach there. And in all these years, the 10 years I'd practiced Buddhism, what I kind of picked up, both in the ethics or the uh, kind of custom of the Buddhism I'd encountered, and also in this physical feeling of just being a response. All I wanted to do was to respond. I, I, didn't have any, I didn't feel like I had much, the idea of taking initiative and wanting to teach or something like that kind of didn't quite compute. And strange to say when I just said, I asked Jack if I could, he would train me. But, but um, anyway, so I showed up and, and I was, so I, was, I thought I would be invited to teach, so I'll teach. But I, I wasn't going to do anything unless they, I was invited to do it by this group. And um, so I would teach and, and they asked something and I said, oh, sure, sure. And that probably lasted for about two and a half years or so, two years, until I realized that how silly I was being. That um, it was implicit, the invitation was to take leadership for the group. And that, that you know, it was kind of a burden to expect them to just invite me to do everything. That uh, I had now some responsibility to be the one who had some vision, some ideas, and so. You know, I practice more than them, so I would. You know, okay. I, I think it'd be nice if we had a half-day retreat. So we had a half-day retreat. Okay. I had the vision that was like they were ready for that, and then I had this vision. They could do a whole day retreat. <laughs> we could have a class on loving kindness. We could have a second evening of the week. And so, as the uh, the group grew. 
uh, it became clear that part of my job was to have vision. And you're now sitting in it. <laughs> We're sitting in it. <laughs> So is that kind of like, <laughs> is that enough or that, that what you have in mind? Or I, I don't know where, how, how this is supposed to go or <laughs> if you have questions or. Um. I think that was so great There's, and, and really to um, just share a little bit about, you know, uh, your path and uh, your journey. Y you mentioned um, at the beginning this question of how the Dharma lives in you. And maybe that might be nice to just, you know, if, if there's something that, you know, um, Yeah. I, th I thought I was trying to make that whole. Th <laughs> That's what I was trying. The whole thing was trying to expl explain. <laughs> but I think that um, um, the Dharma, whatever that is, is uh, I think the most important thing for me. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like the Dharma. You know, I, I, language kind of fails for me to t say this, but. Um, and you know, I, you know, I could say the words "me" and "mine," and which I'm—I don't not, especially when talking about this story about myself. It doesn't actually make me very happy to. to just, it's not, there's not really a reference point here that makes logical sense for me. There's a way in which, um, if I turn around to look for myself, there's nothing there to see. And it's not, it's not like I'm disassociated. <laughs> I mean, I see thoughts and feelings and emotions and impulses, and body sensations. I mean, there's a <clears throat> whole universe in there that's going on that I'm trying to be mindful of and try to track and all that. But in seeing all those things, I don't see me. I don't see a self. I don't see like, this is who I really am. And, um, and so if some sense of self has been replaced by something, if you use that language, it's been replaced by the Dharma. And so I trust the Dharma more than anything else, that, that, that that's where life comes from. It's kind of like, feels like it's the source of life. And it kind of puts me at the beginning, the source where it all begins, where it all begins every moment, where it all responds. And it feels like it's continuous. It's not just in me, it's continuous with everything around me is the feeling that, um, it's a little bit, you know, in terms of living the Dharma, it's a little bit like I'm living in a, yeah, mostly I come up with what I don't want to say, but it's a little bit like, you know, what I don't want to say is that it's like a dream. I don't want to say it's like a magic show. Um, 
I'm not quite want to say that it's, you know, this uh, interdependent, interrelated process. Um, it just feels that the Dharma is this wonderful mutual collective process that is just kind of unfolding and working and that mostly it's a matter of getting out of the way of it. And, uh, and, and from there, <clears throat> with that, there's, um, there are all kinds of motivations that arise that feel very nurturing or appropriate or healthy or part of, it's part of this whole, this healthy whole or this feeling of uh, freedom that feels like it's everywhere. And so uh, there's a few things, impulses that arise out of that. Uh, one of them is compassion. And I would say that my most of my adult life now, since that time when I was at Tassara, has been uh, a kind of a compassion-centered life. That's kind of the, the driving force for choices that this, this, you know, seem to be being made. And, um, and generosity. Uh, there's something beautiful about generosity. And uh, I think, you know, you, you, uh, Max, you talked about, you know, letting go, life of letting go was part of the theme, right? I think that, um, not holding on, not clinging, not grasping, letting go is also seems like, you know, a strong impulse or motivation or, or way of being that uh, also seems to come out of this dharma way of living that feels so right, it feels so good. I mean, it's not like letting go is a drag. It's like it's the best thing. It's like the best thing going, <clears throat> because of what's what's left when you let go is so good. Is that a little bit better? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much.